This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. A new family had moved into the community. The members of a nearby church made several contacts with the new people in their vicinity. One day, as the pastor of the church was talking with this family, the lady said, You are a nice man. Your church members are friendly people. But to be very honest, preacher, my family and I are just not interested in religion. This woman is different from many people in that she had the boldness to say to the preacher exactly what she felt. But she is typical of many others in the sense that they feel that the Christian faith is unimportant and unnecessary. This woman was not an atheist or any such thing. She was probably a very decent and moral person. She probably had no objections to having churches for those who wanted such things, such as for weddings and funerals or to have someone upon whom she could call in a time of crisis. Her problem was not so much that she found Christianity unbelievable, but it was that she felt that it just did not offer anything that she needed. This is a feeling of a multitude of people who say in actions, if not in words, we can get along just as well without Jesus. And so this kind of negative illustration sets the stage for us to look at another aspect of the same idea we've been thinking about now. How can we believe? This morning we come to ask the question, how can we believe that Jesus really meets our needs? I want to place before you three reasons why we can believe that Jesus really meets our needs. The first is this, through giving meaning to life. The idea that life is basically meaningless is demonstrated by so many people today, and especially uh, in a resort pleasure-filled place like Myrtle Beach, where we live. There are many who come here to try to get away from it all. Some live here in a kind of day-by-day existence, which has no future except tomorrow, or maybe today. Many who live this kind of life have not stopped to look at what they're doing, just drifting along from one day to the next, aiming at nothing in life, and hitting dead center what they're aiming at. And thus life becomes empty and meaningless. One day a very fine Christian friend was talking with a famous lawyer, criminal lawyer, Clarence Dara, who had much professional success, but very little happiness in his heart. Dara said to this friend, you want to know my favorite Bible verse? It is Luke chapter 5, verse 5. We have toiled all night and have taken nothing. In spite of all my successes, he said, that verse seems to sum up the way I feel about life. Emptiness, life without meaning, nothing. Another example of this aimlessness of life is portrayed by a small machine that was found on a businessman's desk. It's a small wooden box with a switch on one side. 
when you turn the switch on, a buzzer starts, the lid of the box opens, and out comes a hand. The hand reaches over and turns off the switch, then goes back into the box, the lid closes, and the buzzing stops. That's about as much purpose and future as some people seem to have in life. Look at some of the art forms we have today, art, music, novels, plays. Over and over the point is made that there is no point. But Jesus comes to our tired, jaded lives to say that there is a purpose. He calls us to a way of life that gives meaning even to that which is commonplace. Jesus calls us to a commitment of personality and life to a way which is confusing to those who will not make their, that commitment. Yes, the cross is a stumbling block to some. It was in Jesus' day, and it still is. But to those who are willing to give themselves to Christ, even those whose lives were completely meaningless have found a new purpose in Him. Some years ago, a minister received a letter from prison which told about racial disturbances they had there in the jail. A young white man was stabbed and was rushed to the prison hospital in critical condition. In his delirium, he called for his mother, the one person who had always loved him, but they could not locate her. Then the warden sent for an older black man who had been violent when he entered the prison three years before but since he had accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. The big man came into the hospital room, leaned down, put his hand on the boy's fevered brow, and he began to whisper to him that Jesus loved him even more than any mother could. The boy said, I want someone to hold me. So the black man scooped up the dying boy and held him in his arms. Then he began singing to him softly. Those who stood by heard the boy whisper one word, Jesus, and then he died. The letter said, Preacher, since then, this prison has been the quietest in its history. The men talk and sing together. The blacks and the whites are beginning to know one another. Jesus came into this place. Yes, Jesus really meets our needs through giving meaning to life. But I think there's another reason why we can believe that Jesus really meets our needs. And this is through giving us an example to follow. The Christian life is not some cold, dull theological system of do's and don'ts. It is a life which we can live as we follow in his steps. Some years ago, a man named Lyman Abbott sat in the office of a pastor of a big church. In 45 minutes, this guest preacher was to go out and preach on the subject about which he had written a book, What Christianity Means to Me. The pastor of the church came in and laid on his desk a copy of Dr. Abbott's book. Then he made this request of the author. I'd like for you to autograph this for me, and I'd like for you to write in it the richest thought you have had in your 60 years of ministry. The pastor of the church left the room, returning about 30 minutes later. Dr. Abbott sat still, pen in his hand, 
book open in front of him, staring off into space. But he had not written a word in the front of that book. And so the pastor who had made that request tiptoed out of the room. Fifteen minutes later, it was time for the service to begin. So the pastor returned to his office. The ink was still not dry on the first pages of that book. Here's what Dr. Lyman Abbott had written. Christianity is not a philosophy that Jesus came to teach. Christianity is a life that Jesus came to impart. I think the longer we live, the more we'll find that there are certain things that we are faced with that we simply cannot handle alone. We'll find that there are burdens, trials, temptations, and problems that we and ourselves are simply incapable of handling. There are those times when we have to admit that we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. And here is where we really need Jesus, his pattern of life, his way, his help. Now, admittedly, the example of Jesus does not always make sense to a non-Christian, but his way, his example, is not an untried theory. His way really works. Dr. Roy Angel tells a story of a phone call about 10 o'clock one night, which was made to one of the most famous physician surgeons in Paris. The call was from a man named Messonnier, who's famous also in his own field of art, particularly portrait and landscape painting. The artist said, Doctor, will you please come over to my house very quickly? I have an emergency. I need you very much, and I don't want anybody else but you. Will you please come? I know you don't make house calls, but, and I know you have to operate tomorrow morning, but Doctor, please make this one exception. I'll see to it that you're well paid for it. Well, the doctor hurried over to the artist's house, and when Messonnier met him at the door, the surgeon said, Well, I'm glad to see that you are not the patient. You're pretty important to Paris for your paintings. Quickly, they went through room after room in the great mansion until they came to a little sun porch where, among the cushions, lay a tiny poodle, a little dog with a broken leg. The great surgeon almost froze with astonishment, and then he had some degree of anger. But the surgeon swallowed his pride, bit his tongue, opened his bag, set the little dog's bone, put the splints on very carefully, and prepared to leave. The artist thanked the doctor for coming. Then he said, Doctor, I want you to send me a big bill. I don't care how much it is, I'll pay it. The surgeon replied, no, I'm not going to send you any bill at all. I want you to come up to my office next week and we'll talk about the payment. When the artist arrived the next week, the doctor said, you're a painter, aren't you? The artist said, yes, I paint portraits and landscapes. The surgeon said, well, you are a painter, aren't you? Once again, the artist answered, yes, I, I paint portraits and landscapes. But the belligerent surgeon persisted, this time with a bit of sarcasm in his voice. But you are a painter, aren't you? Yes, sir, he said. I am a painter. I paint portraits and landscapes. Well, come with me, said the doctor. 
they went through three or four rooms till they came to a little room with nothing in it but a cabinet in the middle of the floor, which was covered with newspapers. Near the cabinet, there was a can of white paint and a cheap brush. The doctor said, I want you to paint this cabinet for me, and we'll call the bill for the dog even, square. And with a sneer, the doctor left the room. A little while later, the artist came back to the doctor's office with no resentment at all in his voice. He said, Doctor, you're going to be using that room for the next three or four days? No, I don't think so, replied the doctor. Take your time. If you can't get to it now, just paint it any time you want to. Well, may I have the key to the room, Messonnier asked. He was given the key and he locked the room. A few days later, the artist came back and smilingly said to the doctor, Doctor, I finished painting that cabinet. I want you to come look at it. I hope it suits you. As the doctor went in and examined the cabinet, there on the front of it was a painting which was absolutely breathtaking in its beauty and meaning. It was a painting that has been called Messonnier's Masterpiece. The doctor stood with his mouth open for a minute, and then he said, You are a better man than I am. I'm going to take that cabinet home and put it in my living room, but I'm not going to tell anybody how ugly I was to you. Now, suppose Messonnier had just painted that cabinet white, as the doctor had requested. They would have squared off at each other and been enemies for the rest of their lives. Instead, they became the closest of friends. They made each other happy. This is the kind of thing that can happen when we allow Jesus and His way to be our example. Every day, people in the world are starving for an expression of Christianity in action such as this. Yes, Jesus can meet our needs by giving us an example to follow. But uh, there is a problem with this idea. If Jesus is only our example to follow, then we don't have much hope, do we? I heard about two men who were thrown into the water when their sailboat suddenly collapsed. One of the men was a very poor swimmer. He splashed about in a frantic effort to stay afloat. The other man, an expert swimmer, headed for shore, swimming with strong, powerful strokes. Then he turned and called to his buddy, I want you to do what I'm doing and you can make it. But it was altogether too late for a swimming lesson. The poor swimmer was unable to save himself. The helpless man did not need a teacher. He didn't need an example. What he needed was a rescuer. If Jesus' purpose in coming into this world was only to be our teacher or our example, we'd all still be lost. But Jesus is more. And so the final reason I want to give this morning for how we can believe that Jesus really meets our needs is by forgiving our sins. The noted psychiatrist Carl Menninger points out in his book entitled Whatever Became of Sin that the word sin has disappeared from public use. He says that the only wrong behavior that deserves our attention is crime which calls for imprisonment or maybe disease which calls for treatment. Menninger believes 
that a renewed sense of personal accountability to God for our sins is essential for us to have healthy lives. As we face up to our own sins, then we can find release from guilt and a new beginning for the future. This is the heart of Christianity. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the Savior for sinners. The cross of Christ is the meeting place between man's sin and God's love. I think this is what Jesus was speaking of when he gave that great invitation we find recorded in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. These are his words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The sin burden that so many of us carry is that which will pull us down to the point of despair. But Jesus came to take away our sins through his death on the cross. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus took on himself the evil and the hurt of human sin and guilt, and he offers forgiveness to sinners who've gone astray. Dr. E. Stanley Jones told about a man who had been unfaithful to his marriage vows. Even though his adulterous relationship was now ended, yet he felt a heavy burden of guilt because he had betrayed the loyal love and the trust of his wife. One day he tried to unburden his soul of guilt by confessing to his wife what he had done. As the meaning of his words dawned upon her, she turned pale and began to cry. The guilty husband could see the anguish she must have felt. Finally, when she was able to speak, she assured him of her continued love for him and of her willingness to forgive what he had done. The man was deeply moved. He said later, in that moment, I saw the meaning of the cross. I saw love crucified by sin. Yes, true forgiveness is always costly. The one who forgives has to absorb some hurt. But this is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. Oh, how wonderful it is that he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's Psalm 103, verse 10. At the funeral of an old country doctor many, many years ago, there were several people in the community who rose to speak a word of appreciation of this doctor. Every person, overflowing with deep emotions, related some of the grand things in the old doctor's life. Among them, they mentioned, was that he always went day or night whenever he was needed. Since he never sent out bills, probably half the people in the county owed him some money. But he was a bachelor, and he often said to poor people, don't worry about paying me. I don't have much expense anyhow. When it came time in the funeral for the preacher to speak, he began by saying this, 
Let me ask you to imagine something with me. When our beloved doctor died, God sent Gabriel after him to take him to heaven. On the way, the doctor asked, Where are you taking me, Gabriel? Gabriel answered, In my father's house are many mansions. One is waiting for you. After a long silence, the doctor spoke again. But Gabriel, what about my sins? Gabriel smiled and said, God buried them. Again, a long time elapsed before the old doctor asked another question. Gabriel, where did God bury my sins? Gabriel answered quietly, He has forgotten. The words of a hymn are so true. He'll forgive your transgressions and remember them no more. How can we believe that Jesus really meets our needs? Through giving meaning to life, through giving us an example to follow, and through forgiving our sins. A number of years ago when my sister lived in Nashville, Tennessee, she was a member of First Baptist Church there. We used to attend that church when we visited her. For many years, the pastor of that church was Dr. W.F. Powell. He once told of something he'd experienced in his earlier years. He was from a farming background. He said these words, I was riding a mule home after hoeing corn all afternoon when I came to a closed gate on our farm. I got off the mule to open the gate. I led him through and tied him on the other side. Just as I closed the gate, I heard a pitiful cry. I couldn't quite decide what it was until I saw a little bird on the ground that looked for all the world like it was drunk. Its feathers were fluffed out, its wings drooped, it staggered along with its head rolling from side to side. I wondered what in the world was wrong with that bird. And then I saw not far away a large black snake looking straight at that bird, his tongue flipping in and out, and his head moving ever so slowly from side to side. I did not know anything about hypnotism, but I did know what to do. I grabbed my hoe and circled around behind that black snake and chopped him half in two. The bird lay there motionless. I decided to watch it for a little while to see if it had died or if it would revive. A few minutes later, it moved and pulled in one wing and then the other. And after a bit, the little bird stood up tottering, but looking up at a low limb of a tree. And finally, it flew up to that limb. I watched the bird climb higher and higher until it was in the top of the tree. Dr. Powell said that as he rode along home that day, the words of a song kept coming to his mind he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Oh God, we're so grateful. We are so grateful that you've given us your son who does meet our needs. 
So often we try to do it on our own and go our own merry way without the help of Jesus. Lord, forgive us. Give us a new beginning. Cleanse our lives. Redirect our hearts. And help us, Lord, day by day to know that we can trust you and we can trust your son Jesus for whatever our needs may be. This we pray in his matchless name. Amen.